Hey, welcome to the Gospel app. We are in a series going through the Sermon on the Mount, but first, some exciting news. According to Feedspot, the Gospel Rant is the number 11 of the top 100 Christian podcast in 2021. Uh, we're so grateful and encouraged. Thank you for your interest. Thanks for listening and keep passing it on to others. All right, let's get back to the Sermon on the Mount and get the dialogue going again. So where are we? We're looking at the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4. And I said last time, this is a critical section for us to understand the Jesus of the Mount. These are Satan's top three weapons. These are the big dogs. And last time we saw his temptation to Jesus to proclaim rocks to be bread. Parlor trick for Jesus, right? And if you heard that podcast, we said that the danger of the temptation is not that it is a temptation to do something bad or evil or wrong. It's a temptation to actually do something good, which makes it very dangerous and very subtle. And I fall for this all the time. Do you? Jesus didn't fall for it at all. And there's lots of reasons why, but the one we focused on was that he was living out of what we have coined as spirit faith. He innately, down to his very gut, his very being, his very motivation, core motivation, trusted the Trinity so much uh, that he truly desired to submit to their step-by-step leading. Giving up control over his step-by-step was job one. And again, you know, when we get into the inner workings of the Trinity, it gets way over my head, so I'm speaking humanly here. But he's following the lead of the Spirit, even if it makes him hungry or leads him to the cross. All right, so me, man, I just, I got to tell you, I don't find that natural at all. My brain naturally, it seems, pushes against me giving up my rights and giving up my control. I mean, that's got a frightening concept for me, right? That's hurt too many times. So my job, number one, knowing that about my brain, is to figure out a way to access that spirit faith all the time, daily, from the spirit in my inner being. How? Well, this is one of the passions of Gospel App Ministries. We teach people how to get that. How? It's so simple. You ask. And again, and again, and again. We'll show you how. The first temptation was for Jesus to stop submitting, stop following the Spirit, and to take control over his life again, to desubmit, right, so to speak. And the second and third temptations are equally insidious. These are two topics that we really focus on in the online gospel intensive, The Dance. And Matthew's temptation number two could be related to Jesus's experience of, or theoretical lack of experience of, connectedness with the Father, connectedness. And the third temptation could be related to Jesus's experience of enoughness or lack of enoughness. And that's so relevant to us today. It's our struggles as well. Great backdrop to the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see, we'll mention this quite a bit, connectedness and enoughness. And here we go. Deep in the dark shadows of our midbrains, all of us, there are two subconscious questions that are always being asked, always demanding answers, always driving us, motivating us, uh, leading us to do, make certain choices. And here they are. Number one, can I count on you? Can I count on you? Relationally, can I count on you? And this is connectedness or lack of connectedness. Do you have my back? Will you stick around, not abandon me or turn on me? Can I trust you? Right? And then the second question is, am I worthy of your love? This is enoughness. 
Do I have that worth where other people approve, appreciate, like me? I live up to their expectations. What can people acknowledge my lovability? Am I worthy of glory? That's the second question, right? So can I count on you? And am I worthy of your love? Our subconscious is screaming that all the time, looking for the answers to that. And they're everywhere in our relationships with ourselves, with God, with others. And Satan, I think this is what's happening, is going to test the waters to see that somehow at the incarnation, Jesus picked up these very human insecurities or in attachment theory speak, the inner working models or not. Or, and this is a big or, did Jesus's ongoing present experience of his relationship with God, the Father and the Spirit fill both of those cups? his enoughness and connectedness cups. If he felt present enoughness and connectedness related to the Trinity, these temptations just have no power. They're going to fall flat on their faces. And tip, by the way, this would be same for me if and when I'm actually feeling enoughness and feeling connectedness related to God. In those moments, and their moments, I am not a sucker for this type of temptation as much. Well, this is a great point for a shameless plug for the two-hour, under two hours, online gospel intensive, The Dance. This is the point. We designed it for Christians so that in that very short time, and it is ridiculously short time, you can get an immediate shot of enoughness and connectedness related to God. And to be clear, for you to presently experience again the enoughness and connectedness that Jesus has already perfectly purchased for you 2,000 years ago— Look, if we do not humiliate ourselves and run to God to get filled with the fullness of God, right, feeling his love for me and you right now, Satan is just going to have a field day. I'm just saying. So I'm begging you, take a look at The Dance, www.the-dance.org. Satisfaction guaranteed. There's, there's, There's no reason not to. What I am saying is that we can overcome. There is an effective strategy, simple, a child could do it, to make Satan's temptations more impotent. You've got this, okay? And we're going to show you how, again, just keep on listening. All right, here's Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7 in the NIV. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jesus, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, or better, since you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So my first stray observation is that Satan sure seems to be pretty comfortable in the temple, right? Just me. And that's troubling. It's like he owns the place. The commentator Bruner rightly puts it, the devil is not only at work in the wilderness, he's at work in the temple as well. And and not just at church, but at the high places of church. Just saying, never ever think that the church is a protected bubble, like that children's game where as long as you're on base, you're safe. We know that the Spirit is in our congregations and worship spaces, and there is no doubt in my mind that Satan or his minions or representatives are there as well. In my 25-plus years, I've seen witches come and curse my churches after sitting quietly through the entire service. I've seen people get sick when Scripture was read, uh, which we later cleared up by an exorcism of all things. I mean, so this is the person who was in our worship. Just saying, if you're preaching the gospel, you're a target, and good on you. 
second kind of stray observation and equally frightening, Satan is a really good student of the Bible, effective anyway, not necessarily right. He knows scripture very well and he can use it as a weapon. I knew one young man who was being sucked into a religious cult, supposedly Christian cult. When I spoke to him, he just couldn't wrap his head around the possibility that the cult wasn't godly, of God, uh, Christian, right? They use scripture all the time. So that convinced him they were biblical. Then for some unknown reason, and not meaning not planned by my brain, so I, fat, dumb, and happy, we say down south where I'm from, I turned to this passage. I'm still not sure humanly why. It didn't make a lot of sense. It was just the passage that I thought I should go to, Matthew 4. And I had him read about Satan quoting scripture. Well, the young man slammed his Bible shut and then said, I'm done. Done with what? Well, done with the cult. Because he saw clearly that even Satan quotes the Bible. God is good and But Satan knows the Bible inside and out, so we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to hear with discernment. All right, let's dig into the passage. A lot of interpreters, and I get it, they take the direction that Satan is tempting Jesus with immediate glory. Now, jump off the temple and imply it in view of the crowd that's always there, and let them watch as God catches you and protects you, and then they will bow and worship you and follow you. They'll proclaim you as the Messiah, and and you'll experience glory. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to go through that horrible, horrible crucifixion thing. So according to this line of thinking, Satan is appealing to Jesus's ego. He needs glory and recognition, and now would be good. He needs followers. I get it, and I hear the logic of that, and that might be right or partly right, but I'm going to emphasize, I think, a better reason behind Satan's confrontation, largely based upon the psalm that Satan quotes to Jesus. There's absolutely nothing in the psalm that speaks about ego or glory, but it does have a lot to say about something else, and that's connectedness. How is your connectedness to God the Father right now? Can I count on God the Father right now? So let me put the second temptation in modern speak. So here is the my first shot at, at that interpretive, highly interpretive, expanded screenplay version, including I've added the entire Psalm 91, and let's see where it leads us. All right, we'll start with Satan speaking. You know, Jesus, after... 40 days of being abandoned in the wilderness? Well, maybe that's too strong a word, but you tell me. I mean, no food, just you by yourself. You have to begin to feel isolated. I mean, no judgment from me. I've got your back. You have to wonder, right? I mean, of course you're still the son of God. Of course you've only been the best example of what a son could or should be. Any father would be proud of you. And I'm sure that's right. I can't explain where God is or what he's thinking. It's a communication issue, right? An oversight. So here's an idea. Here we are at God's earthly house, the temple. I don't see him, but he must be here, probably busy. It's his temple. So let's be proactive and get his attention because you're worth it. Just jump and watch how fast he comes to your aid. He's going to drop everything. You will be in his arms in a millisecond, and then you will know that he's got your back. 
I think he would be so sad to hear that you even wondered about what he felt towards you. So let's fix it all once for all. Just jump. I think that's what Psalm 91 is implying. It's not totally on point. I get that. But the gist is there. What I mean is it's scriptural. And these are your very words, right? Psalm 91 reads, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus, that's you. That's clearly you, O Son of God. You need rest. Verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, which, by the way, Jesus, you of all people clearly have your poster child for refuging in God. You just want to feel it more now, and nobody blames you for that. I certainly don't. All right, back to Psalm 91. Then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's what I'm saying, Jesus. Verse 13, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent because he loves me, says the Lord. I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. Jesus, son of God, no one has ever loved the Lord more than you. Verse 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So jump, Jesus. You will feel the closeness with God again. He says so. You don't have to keep wondering where your father has been. Close quote. Wow. See, all right, that's a broad interpretive translation. It's not really a translation. It's an interpretation. I get it. But what I'm suggestion is, suggesting is that Satan is betting on another typical weakness among we humans. Think with me. What would Jesus have gained from doing what Satan suggested. I mean, if he jumped and God kept him from crashing on the ground, then he would know, I guess, really know that God was his protector, that God had his back, that he was really the favored son of God, that he and God the Father had this amazing connectedness. You know, the all the things that God had already said and already done for him in his baptism just 40 days before. He already has it. He's already got this. So, I don't think it's a temptation to glory in, in the eyes of the, the worshipers in the temple, so much as the temptation to doubt whether he's still in good relational standing with God, experiential, whether they feel that way or not towards him, whether Jesus is still connected relationally, experiential to God when he hadn't felt it for a while, you know, 30, 40 days. We humans live by the phrase, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? So I felt God a week ago or two weeks ago or 40 days ago. I feel, I did feel loved and honored and special and embraced, I think. I'm pretty sure. But, you know, it's been a couple of bad days and weeks and months. And 
I'm not feeling it anymore. I did before COVID, but now I wonder, have I done something wrong? Because I feel isolated and exposed and unwanted and abandoned. So I wonder, and maybe even a bit anxious that maybe I've done something to upset God or disappoint him, or he just got tired of me, this, this rescue project, and he went on to somebody better. I mean, is it just me? See, those questions come from that nasty, critical inner voice in my brain. We all have it. And and that inner voice assumes that it's its job to make me feel disconnected and alone, not just from God, but from everybody. My nasty, critical inner voice is so often anti-gospel. One blogger puts it this way, that critical inner voice exists in all of us, reminding us constantly that we aren't good enough and don't deserve anything good. It, quote, tends to be louder and meaner in some of us than others, and it tends to pick on us more or less at different points in our lives. Yet, one thing's for sure, as long as we are listening to this dangerous critic that twists our reality, we cannot really trust our own perceptions of what others think of us. To one degree or another, we are lonely and feel broken. And again, this is not just true with others, but Also, we subconsciously project that upon our relationship with God, that Jesus fully 100% purchased for us 2,000 years ago, that can never be more or less than it is right now, but we don't feel it all the time. We stop hearing the music, and we wonder, and our critical inner voice hammers us and says, you messed up, something's wrong, God's, God's turned his back on you. I would suggest that so much of our worship and prayer and quiet times are part of a, a subconscious struggle to manipulate God to, to, to make me feel connected again. We are connected because Jesus purchased it, but sometimes we stop hearing the intimate music and we start feeling disconnected. Did you know two-thirds of Christians sometimes wonder that when they see God face-to-face, see Jesus face-to-face, that he will turn away in disgust and disappointment. Two-thirds. And they know it's not true, but that's what we fear. That's what we're anxious about. It's that critical inner voice. It affects a lot of us and, and a lot of our actions. So maybe, and I'm just speculating here, that Satan was checking to see that if and when Jesus was incarnated, fully God and fully human, right, that in the fully human part, he picked up this critical inner voice thing as well. So maybe... After 40 days of silence from the heavens, no voice saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, 40 days of humiliation, right? He had the throne, now he's humiliating himself. He's giving up his rights. He's giving up interest and control. And he's just damn hungry that Jesus just might naturally, subconsciously, in his humanity, wonder if he had disappointed the father somehow, that he had messed up. I would. I mean, I see where Satan is going with this. Wouldn't it be reasonable to test God's faithfulness and favor, Jesus? Well, if you ask me, man, my my voice would say, yeah, 10 times out of 10. I I guess I need to be convinced over and over and over. I might not be moved to jump from a church roof, but I might use fasting or prayer or tithing or good works to subconsciously manipulate or to shame God or, I mean, foolishly try to guilt God into showing up uh, to pat me on the back. It's such a human thing. I mean, don't, don't get angry or deny it. We all do it just different ways, but not Jesus. 
his innate spirit faith was not only willing and motivated to give up control to the spirit, but listen, to give up feeling God's closeness, if need be, to give up seeing God smile, if need be, for the sake of the mission. Remember the rescue mission. Well, I can count on one hand the, the times that, that I think I actually did that. It, it's, it's against my, my humanity. Not a day goes past when I don't need to ask God to make me feel more loved. I don't wake up feeling loved by God. It goes away somewhere. So I need to ask the Spirit to make me feel adored, to make me feel honored and desired, to really feel my sonship that Jesus purchased 2,000 years ago. I'm shame prone. Like, by the way, so many others, particularly my Gen Y and Gen Z brothers and sisters, half the population in the United States, so I can get sucked into the critical inner voice, quote-unquote, truth statements and become anxious and self-critical and manipulative and, and yeah. And look, it's not my all my fault. I'm just saying... Can I choose to give that up? No, apparently not. Apparently, I don't have the muscle group. It's technically a deeply rooted habit. I mean, uh, think addiction with a voice and, and a nasty critical personality. You can't just choose from my prefrontal cortex to end habits. They must be replaced by a more powerful habit that's more influential, and that takes time and repetition. How? I can do step number one, begin to ask for the same spirit faith that was innate to Jesus. God, give me that. Jesus did not need that shot of emotion uh, to, to feel the presence and the goodness and the smile of God, the favor of God, but I do. So Satan misjudged, but, but you know, it's good for us to know that, that this wasn't part of, uh, of Jesus's stuff. Satan misjudged the nature of Jesus's spiritual and emotional in syncness with the Trinity. Now, look, it's hard for me to do anything other than to imagine what that could feel like for Jesus. Uh, and I get it that, and I, and I long for this feeling to be eventually made full in heaven, but I also really want it now a little bit impartially. So for me, if it was me in the wilderness, the temptation would have been crippling. I've learned that I need to pray multiple times a day that God would give me his power through his spirit in my inner being so that I would begin again and again and again and again, always present tense, to grasp, to get the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus for me as I am, not as I should be or could be, right? The simple, uncluttered gospel. And all the while, my inner, inner critical voice is raising doubts, not not. Not to mention pointing to things that happen to me daily that give it ammunition. So listen, Bill, if God loved you, you'd feel it, right? Wouldn't you have gotten that job, that parking spot, that that product, that that healing? You wouldn't get COVID, right? You you wouldn't have been wrongly criticized by that person, right? God would step in. That is, if you were really valuable to him. And maybe you were once, but hey, things change. It's been 40 days. Jesus, though, at least not yet, never left the experiential favor of God. He always felt the favor of God, except perhaps once. On the cross, he says to God, why have you forsaken me? Just once. Could that mean that the spirit was split apart? Was it fragmented? I mean, that's how we so often teach it or imply that. 
No, God forbid. I, I, I'm not sure what that would say about our Trinitarian theology. I mean, it, I think it shatters it. The Trinity is solid. They're never fragmented. They're always on board. They, they're always in that celestial dance, always, right? And this is, again, a shameless plug for the the dance, our online gospel intensive. It's all about that relationship with God and the intimacy and the joy and the fun, like a dance around www.the-dance.org. Do it, please. I'm begging you. But we might say, and this is where I land on it, Jesus on the cross for a nanosecond felt abandoned by God, experienced abandonment and forsakenness by God. It wasn't true, but for a moment in his humanness, remember above my pig grade, he experienced that same critical inner voice that I experienced daily. So again, it's good news. Ultimately, it can be said that he really does know all of my temptation struggles. He does. He just <laughs> won. But in that very next moment on the cross, the deep, miraculous, innate to God, inner spirit faith made him trust his spirit to God again. Right back to knowing the favor. And I'm going to experience that in heaven all the time. But for now, I have to ask the Spirit to make me feel it daily, and, and you too. So Jesus says to Satan, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, you can translate that, and I think this is really good translation by Bruner again. You shall not force the hand of, you shall not try to manipulate. I like that one uh, in modern context. Or you shall not play around with. Spirit faith, the stuff of Jesus is just not wired to test God or to manipulate God or to bully God or to shame God into an action. Spirit faith does just the opposite. It submits to God's lead. It's motivated to let God drive the car all the time, even if the car is driving through the valley of the shadow of death again and again. The spirit faith always wants to put God in control, always accepts God's control and the mission first. Remember, Jesus is the kingdom's of God's mission is to rescue others. And again, we humans can't seem to pull this off. Like I said, we ultimately don't want to give up control. We, we want to bargain with God, quid pro quo. We want upfront, upfront guarantees. <sighs> so what can we do? How can we get better? How can we change? Again, you don't. You don't. The spirit face is not naturally in you. All we can do is access it, this side of heaven. Uh, look, you could if you could have changed, you would have, right? I'm just giving you the benefit of the doubt. But the good news is the spirit in Jesus is is in you. That and, and that spirit is immersed in that spirit faith, and we just need to access it from him along with his power. Read Paul in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and be immersed in that spirit, faith, power, and motivation for a moment. Be made to be in that kind of spirit faith in the moment. Just ask, and we can show you how in the dance. We'll, we'll stand with you, and, and we'll practice it in those two hours. Satisfaction guaranteed. Just try it. All right, let's move on. Remember Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor? We talked about it last time in his masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov. Great book, by the way. A must-read. The angry rationalist brother Ivan wrote a 
creative fiction about Jesus returning in the middle of the 16th and 17th century Inquisition Spain. The story has Jesus coming back, being arrested, and then subjected to interrogation of the Catholic Church Grand Inquisitor, whose first who first lectures Jesus about how he mishandled the three questions, right? The wilderness temptations. It's so brilliant. So listen to a question that the Inquisitor asked about the second temptation. I think this is so insightful, and I want to project from that. Here's what he asked. Do you, Jesus, believe, even for a moment, that humans could face such a temptation? And the answer, the implied answer is, hell no. And I agree. Imagine a man or woman who has suffered, ravaged with bad news, destructive relationships, diseases, pandemics, or or maybe they, they feel isolated. They don't have relationship or they've been treated unjustly with racism. All the myriads of feelings related to disconnectedness. Can I count on you, right? Or the fears of connectedness, because nothing has hurt us more than relationships or lack of relationships or previous relationships. Everyone's story is different, but they naturally, humanly speaking, though sons and daughters of God in good standing, we wonder reasonably and rationally if God has turned away, if he's abandoned us, if we've disappointed him, or is it just me, or that we are disconnected from him or not enough? Again, another plug for the dance. Where will we go to stop that nagging sense of disconnectedness, of loneliness? It's an epidemic in the United States today. Did you know, and here's some neuroscience, man, we are going everywhere in this podcast. Did you know that loneliness and disconnectedness is felt in our brain in the same place that any pain is registered? So if you trip, hurt your foot, signals are sent to your brain's DACC, and it screams, neurologically speaking, ouch, And at that moment, all of your brain's conscious and subconscious attention is directed to getting rid of that ouch. Ouch, you got to fix it. It is the exact same thing for loneliness, for chronic loneliness, for isolation. When you feel isolated, alone, lonely, disconnected, your DACC subconsciously screams and keeps screaming, ouch, until your brain does something to fix it. Scientist Rachel Wurtzman says, Quote, think of it like this. Loneliness creates hunger in the brain and our brains signal deep dissatisfaction. We become restless, irritable, and impulsive. If we don't have the ability to connect socially, we are so ravenous for our social neurochemistry to be rebalanced. We're likely to seek relief from anywhere. And if that anywhere is opioid painkillers or heroin, it's going to be a heat-seeking missile for our social reward system. Is it any wonder people in today's world are becoming addicted so easily? So the next time you feel isolated or lonely, disconnected from others or from God, take a couple Advils and you'll likely feel better, but you will risk becoming addicted to Advil or opioids or fill in the blank. So what will a chronically lonely, isolated child of God who is in pain and not hearing from God and feeling lonely do? Well, it's a myriad of things. We run to a broad range of counterfeit self-medications, relationships from some destructive uh, uh, 
religions, medicines, alcohol, workaholisms, you you get the idea. Our brain makes us do it. We're not, it's not all our fault. So we're suckers for this second temptation. What can we do? I think the first step is beginning to seeing and admitting that we are so different from Jesus in this place. I mean, not in the way that we're favored by God. That never changes. God loves us as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. But honestly, we don't feel it a lot. Or to be fair, we often stop hearing the relational music. So by the way, if if it were you on the temple and you stepped off and fell and God rescued you, let me ask, how long would that work for you? Would it would that high, that sense of connectedness to God last a month, a year, one very bad day? I mean, God already has saved you in, eternally, and how long has that lasted? Now we're questioning his faithfulness again, his love for us again. Why can't the feelings of connectedness last longer than they do? Well, one of the reasons, and I think the biggest, is because you and I have that powerful, insecure entity in our head, that nasty, critical inner voice, who has a voice, and 24-7, apparently. And, you know, temptations two and three, over and over and over again. By the way, in the dance, we're going to give you a we're going to give you the ability to take that critical inner voice to court. It is so much fun. I don't want to tell you anymore. Just do it. There's a better way. We are invited, and Paul models that we can ask. Ask God to give me power through the Spirit in our inner being so that today, in the midst of life's turmoils and loneliness and isolation and fractured relationships and history of bad relationships, we would miraculously feel surprisingly how it pops up a little of the height and width and length and depth of Jesus's love for me, for us, as we are. It's inexplicable scientifically. We're invited to do it daily. By the way, many times a day, if you can, why not? And we're developing a habit, so it has to be repeated to compete with that nasty critical inner voice. It's not enough to know that God loves you. I'm sure you do. And I'm not saying that you're not going to heaven. If you're a Christian, you are. I'm saying that you probably, like me, stop hearing the music way too often. Stop participating in the dance that Jesus purchased for us 2,000 years ago. And Satan gets that. We just have to feel it or else we won't believe it. We have to experience it or we'll doubt it. And to do that, we need a power that comes from God that is accessed through the Spirit and our inner being. And again, that's what the dance is all about, the-dance.org. The import of all of this, boy, we're going to need this when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think that those people, those tulkoi in the Greek or the anawim in the Hebrew, that sad, tragic, relationally damaged crowd on the on the hillside, believed Jesus's blessed be, found it convincing? Oh, thanks, Jesus didn't know that. I mean, do you think that they went, uh, that's reasonable? No, it wasn't reasonable that Jesus would look over that crowd and say, you're fortunate. There they were, ravenous for connectedness and feeling that they were enough. They were chasing all other substitutes. A thousand times they had heard what losers they were from family, culture, religious leaders, the non-sick, the non-lowly, you know, the rest of the population. They assumed that, and maybe they were told that God was their enemy, because look, he's cursing them. His wrathing was all over them. I guess that's a word. And one time, now they hear that they're blessed. Really? It's inconceivable that their midbrain or ours would buy that very easily. 
they're not going to feel blessed apart from the miracle. God, Jesus, will have to speak into the, the formlessness and void and create order. Relationship. And in my heart, too. These people would have a thousand times out of a thousand, if given the same temptation by Satan, would have jumped head first off the temple. By the way, that's really kind of what they're doing in the in the in the hill country and in Galilee, is they're kind of jumping out of their culture and landing and hoping God catches them and that God would prove himself and, and his love. Matthew is setting the stage really well for us. We now know the audience of Jesus' first remarks. Right? We could cast them today. So Jesus will have to powerfully recreate order into those chaotic souls of lonely, isolated Audis, that present-day formlessness and void, and not just good moral principles. Lonely people hate preaching on principles because their brain is screaming, ouch. They got to deal with that. They got to focus. They're going to be inward directed. They can't deal with right and wrong right now. They already figure they've done wrong. They're hurting. Lonely, isolated, disconnected people need a rescue, and that's why Jesus came, and that's why Jesus came to that hillside. All right, I need to wrap it up. Let me know what you think about this or other podcasts. I mean, this has been a bit of a fire hose on the second temptation, but are you buying it? Listen to it again and again. Uh, Are you you resonating with the, the people on the side of the mountain? Is this good news? Is it mixed news? Does it help you see your struggles and your frustrations a little bit and maybe why your relationship with God is the way it is? Does it make you rethink the Sermon on the Mount? A little? A lot? Well, we're not done. Next podcast, we'll look at the third temptation. Uh, Hope to see you then. All right, get the word out. In the meantime, take heart, child of God. Has fear stolen your peace? I'm Jennifer Slattery, lead host of the Faith Over Fear podcast, helping you fight your fears and grow your faith. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.